You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. It's time to talk Sixers. Ben double eight. Oh, baby! Ben Simmons between the legs, and then he rocks the rim. Here on the broadcast, the official podcast of Sixers.com. Here's a steal by Covington. A three ball is in the air. And good! Robert Covington pours in another three. Now, here's today's episode. Nothing like a tough game one of a playoff series to give you a true appreciation for just how long it takes for two days to pass (laughs) before getting to see another game come up in the series. But such has been the case for the 76ers. They are back at it on Thursday night, 8.30 on TNT and 97.5, the Fanatic game number two of the Eastern Conference semifinals between the Sixers and the Boston Celtics. Sixers looking to bounce back after Monday's 117-101 loss to Boston. Brian Seltzer saying hello once again from up here north in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks, as always, for giving a listen on this edition of the podcast. We're going to hear from general manager of the Delaware Blue Coats, the recently renamed G League affiliate of the Philadelphia 76ers and trusted now personnel man inside the 76ers front office, Elton Brand. We'll be discussing the 76ers, Boston Celtics, Eastern Conference semifinal series of present and also take a trip back in time to the 2012 second round series between the two teams that Elton was a part of and just what exactly is going on at this time of year inside an NBA front office while the playoffs are taking shape, but also some key preparations for the draft have to be made as well. We'll spend a few minutes with Ersan Ilyasova talking about Game 2 adjustments and some of the challenges of trying to defend a fellow big man who can pick and pop like Al Horford can for Boston. Before we dive into the podcast, reminders that to subscribe to the feed, all you got to do is head to either iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher or SoundCloud, type in Sixers Podcast Network, and that will take you to where you need to be for our feed. If you're not a subscriber yet, we hope that you become one. So it wouldn't take, you would think, too long to take one scan of the box score from Monday's Game 1 loss at TD Garden to find the biggest area uh, of telling statistical disparity between the Sixers and the Boston Celtics. You zero right in on the three-pointer column. Sixers went 5 of 26, and the Boston Celtics 17 of 35. And in hearing the Sixers talk about Game 1 in the 48 hours that have passed, there still seems to be a great and understandably strong sense of confidence about this group after all. Uh, Monday was just its second loss and the span of six weeks. So no need to overreact, as J.J. Redick put it. And also there's this vibe that the Sixers have a good idea of how to change some things up going into game number two um, to respond and get back on the winning track. Three-point shooting came from all over the place. Terry Rozier for the Celtics finished with 29. He had seven three-pointers. Al Horford was two of three from outside the arc. He was terrific, and he finished with 26 points, seven rebounds, and four assists. A big man on the other side for the 76ers, who uh, certainly had a good look 
up close and personal against Al Horford in game number one was Ersan Ilyasova. He played 21 minutes off the bench, six points, nine rebounds, and two assists. And following the 76ers practice on Tuesday at the Harvard University Basketball Gym, had a few minutes to sit down with the professional, and here's that conversation. All right, one game in the books, Ersan. What were some of your takeaways from Monday night in Boston? I mean, we, we learned a lot, obviously, about, you know, about Boston, about ourselves. And, uh, you know, obviously it was tough loss, but, you know, this is how playoffs goes. You know, obviously they make the run and, you know, they play really well. Uh, obviously offensively and defensively. So we have, you know, a couple of more days now to kind of, to game two, to adjust ourselves and get better. Rhythm or rust, do you have an opinion on where, on that spectrum, the Sixers fell in that first game? I will say defense. You know, we we didn't come up with uh, you know with a lot of urgency, especially the three-point line. You know, and uh, they shoot they shoot with a high percentage. I think like 17 threes. You know, it's it's way too much for the one playoff game to win. So, I think this is gonna be adjustments. You know, the moving forward, uh, kind of be more urgent in the three-point line and just make them drive. You know, and uh, be sharp offensively because, like I said, like when we turn the ball over, you know, it's end up you know scoring on a fast break with the three-point shots. Talk to me about guarding pick-and-pop situations. It seems like that's something that they can do with some of their big men. I mean, like, you know, the way they play, you know, the whole season long, I mean, they obviously really execute well offensively. You know, they everybody knows where they're supposed to be, and it's, it's why they're hard to defend them sometimes, you know, because, like I said, they have, you know, uh, capable three-point shooters, you know, on the perimeters. That's why, like, like I said, you know, for us to be, kind of more efficient and more kind of, you know, on point. It's like, you know, the pick and roll defense have to be sharp, you know, and uh, uh, I think like uh, we try to switch and they, they try to punish uh, mismatches and stuff. But, you know, we, like I said, you know, a couple of more days and we try to figure out some things. On your end, did you feel like the looks were of good quality on the perimeter in that first game? I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we didn't shoot well, uh, but I mean, all those looks was like a wide open shots, you know, we didn't, you know, make the shots, but I mean, the second games, you know, I think those shots going to go in, but I think the biggest things for us is not offense, you know, our offense, we can score, but you know, it's, I think it's defense, you know, we have to take care of defensively first and after, you know, run an open floor. The man sitting to your left, Ben Simmons, always draws a big media crowd. Joel Embiid is surrounded by a couple dozen people. For those guys, how have you observed them handling their run through this for the first time in the playoffs? I mean, it's like fun for them, you know, be young guys in the league. You know, it's such a big experience. You know, obviously, be part of the, you know, the postseason games, and it's, it's, it's huge. You know, and obviously, be part of the second round. But I think, you know, we cannot, you know, kind of satisfy with it. And I mean, they cannot satisfy with it. We have a lot of things to do. You know, obviously, hopefully, you know, winning game two and you know, turn it all the series around. Last thing, as a veteran, do you almost feel a greater sense of urgency when these opportunities come along in the postseason, not knowing when you might get a shot to make a, a deep push? I mean, yeah, of course. You know, when you have opportunity like this, you have to get you know the best out of it. Because, like I said, you know, I've been on the league for you know 11 years. You know, change a lot of different teams. But I think this is a team unique. You know, we have a really great opportunity to do something really good about. You know, I think in everybody in the career kind of have to go through the, the, some things like what we did, you know, with this team. So I think we have to really kind of be smart about, you know, and uh, I think it's because, you know, the opportunity come and go so quick. That's why we have to be really kind of urgent, you know, and uh, we got, you know, a couple of games to play with the Boston. And hopefully, you know, like I said, game two, try to win and, you know, turn the whole thing around. All right, Ersan, thanks so much. You're welcome, Andrew. You know, because A, the 76ers haven't had a deep stable of veterans in a while, and B, the Sixers also haven't been in the playoffs for a while. 
you kind of lose track of that dynamic that for some guys, whether it's uh, Ersan Ilyasova, who's been in the league for a decade, Marco Bellinelli, who's in his 30s, J.J. Redick, who's in his 12th season and in the postseason for the 12th time, they can look up and examine a situation like this, being in the playoffs with the Sixers, and understandably think, well, how many opportunities might I have left? And if you go back six years ago around this time, the Sixers were in the second round of the playoffs, and they were taking on the Boston Celtics. Elton Brand was a member of the Sixers at that point in time. He's now a member of the 76ers front office as the general manager of the Delaware Bluecoats, the renamed G League affiliate of the Sixers. Elton with the Sixers on this trip. And it's great to once again sit down with Elton Brand. And, you know, Elton, I feel like in recent weeks there have been a lot of reasons between the Blue Coats name change, the end of the regular season, the Sixers being back in the playoffs, and also just because you are a great person to talk to. Guilty as charged, I've been going to the Elton Brandwell <laughs> a whole heck of a lot as of late. So, first of all, thank you, as always, for being so gracious and generous with your time. Ah, uh, Brian, my pleasure, my pleasure. So bring me inside 76ers Central right now. Game one obviously did not go the way the team wanted it to, but here we are, the second round. We didn't chat during the first round, and by all accounts, turn back the clock seven months. This has got to be a situation where the franchise exceeded original expectations. Absolutely. We, uh, you know, it's still a developmental year for us. We were trying to develop guys. We had a lot of young players, a lot of young talent, but we thought it would take a little more time for them to get to – a second round playoff game then it all came together and really excelled the players took great leaps Ben Simmons we've seen that Joel stayed healthy and played great um, added some pieces um, you know JJ Reddick closing games so it really came together at the right time and we fought through adversity so in this series we're gonna have to do that again to get to the next round and if we can do that we feel great about our chances because no one wins a championship or gets to the next level without fighting adversity i want to talk to you definitely about game one in a moment but going back to your whole notion that things happen perhaps at a more accelerated rate can you remember was there a point in the year where you guys some of the decision makers in the organization started to say you know what we might have a little bit more here because I was just going trying to replay the season through my mind December there was a little bit of a rough patch mm -hmm. January there were some strides made and then right around the trade deadline there was that early February winning streak and from there it was like things took off yeah you know started off the season 0-4 and then up and down roller coaster you know we're eighth seed then we're out of the playoffs like a lot of people forget about that time but that that's what got us to this point um, then that surge in February, that was a key component that we felt like, okay, we talked to Alex in the analytic department. And it's like, oh, well, you know, we're four games ahead of where we thought we would be. And then we're six games ahead where we thought we would be. Um, and the team just grew leaps and bounds. Uh, for me, I think a turning point was winning without Joel. You know, we're talking about March yeah. after the concussion and the uh, fracture. After the fracture, you know, it's like, okay, we're, we knew we were great with Joel by then. But then to win those seven or eight games without him really said, okay, these guys can play. They're coming into their own. And then when Joel gets back, because his you know, superstar level is only going to take us even further, we, we're, we're going to make something of this. 
I almost felt like that was an underrated or under-discussed storyline because the winning streak had started and people are kind of caught up, understandably, and like, wow, this team is winning eight games in a row at this stage of the season, and it just kind of continued without Joel, and you had to pause and remember for a second, wait a minute, this team really had issues when Joel didn't play through the first three and a half months of the year. Big issues, big issues. We were way under 500 right. if he didn't play. Way under. It wasn't it was, even, well, maybe like 2-11 and 11 it, out of his, something like that. Exactly. 2-9, 2-11, and, and 11, something like that without Joel playing in the games he missed. So to go on a streak like that, Ben Simmons stepping up the way he did, J.J. Redick, TJ, the whole squad stepping up, I think it prepared us for moments like this a lot better. Brian Colangelo finding, and you guys as a staff finding, the opportunities to get Marco Bellinelli and Ersan Ilyasova, that was something that it seemed, did you feel had extra firepower added to this roster that helped compensate for some of the things that Joel uh, was not able to give when he was on the sideline during that time? Uh, absolutely. You know, that extra firepower without giving up assets. Those teams wanted assets for those guys because they knew that they were going to be in the buyout market. So they were trying to get assets. So, you know, Brian did a great job of not giving assets and, changing the perception of this franchise i was here when players didn't want to come here they didn't want to even work out here for the draft which was insane to me i'm like this is your dream and you're saying you don't even want to work out for a team and now you got two veteran solid players coming to be a part of this that you know that's that's brian and and coach and and this team changing changing the perception around the league it's funny because when you think back on it it probably takes a guy like yourself with an established reputation uh, Gerald Henderson obviously J.J. Redick and Amir Johnson really moving things forward in the summer I feel like it would take something like that to send a message while it might not be completely obvious to the rest of the players in the league that this is a situation that is stable and established and has promise to it absolutely this is a place that you can grow you can have a family if you're a veteran you can enjoy this great city and you can win and you know, contractually, we're going to be fair and be able to take care of you. So you can come to this city and be a sixer and, and um, really achieve something, be a part of something great. Game one, what'd you see? You know, game one, I don't want to sound like this is these are any excuses, but, you know, we had a long layoff. And we're debating, okay, sharpness, because they just played an emotional game seven, and they won, and but they just played today. That's more like the NBA. We went days without a game which is <laughs> outside of All-Star break, that's, that's a long stretch. And everyone knows the lull after All-Star break, that first game back. A lot of shots missed, a lot of missed uh, defensive communications. There's a lot of things that happen when you're, when you're not playing a lot. You know? But granted, Boston played amazing, so I don't want to take anything away from them in that game one. But um, you know, I'm excited to see how we respond. There were a couple things. I mean, I, I think that that game reminded – perhaps fans, media, that the Celtics didn't get here by accident. They lost an incredible amount, but still, they're guys in that team that can play. I mean, Rozier is driving first past Ben, then into Joel. He seems to me at least fearless. Jason Tatum, I'm sure you got a lot of respect for him, given his lineage, and Al Horford, just Mr. Steady. Absolutely, absolutely. They, You know, you can't take a team like that lightly. They got there, they're got a great coach they got they've been a great organization and they have a lot of pride you know that you see people saying oh the Sixers are just going to blow them out the water this and that and already putting this in the Eastern Conference Finals you know I've played with Al he's an amazing player he's he's a star that fits in with any team because he plays his role um, Tatum you know as a rookie playing 
beyond his years. And then Rozier, his confidence level is just just amazing to see his growth over the years. So, yeah, no, they're, they're a formidable team. They can really play. How has Al changed his game over the years? You know, it's funny. He was one of the best mid-range shooters, along with myself, of course. <laughs> Dirk yes. Nowitzki. Like, every year it'd be like, oh, these guys are whatever percentage from the mid-range, from, you know, 14 to 20 feet out. But he knew he had to expand that range, and it's great to see him do that because he's such an ultimate weapon, especially the spacing and the pick-and-roll era. Um, but Mr. Steady, Mr. Steady, he doesn't try to force things. He just takes the shots, and he plays defense, passes the ball, and really wants to win. Great, great teammate. Would you like to think that Elton Brand, maybe if he'd come out of college in 2005, six or seven, as his career went along, could have adjusted to the expanding range in the game? Oh, absolutely. No, with the Hawks, with Coach Budenhauser, it was like, I'm already shooting corner threes. Like, we were practicing <laughs> them for sure. That's where the game was going. You see Baines hit two, two threes in a game. You have to. If you want to be around it, um, you know, you, you definitely have to expand it and change with the times, for sure. I'd have been bombing away. We talked about that rhythm versus rust dynamic going into game one and how it might have benefited the Celtics and who knows how it affected the 76ers. You watch game one of Cleveland and Toronto. Toronto was a team that had a layoff, and the Cavs went seven games with the Pacers, and Cavaliers won game one. So it's an interesting – I'm sure if it had gone the different way, Boston would have said, oh, well, the not having rest didn't help us, and the Sixers would have said having rest was the greatest thing. But it's you know just something you kind of file away in the back of your mind. Absolutely. One of those things you just think about because, you know, being rested, you think you have fresh legs, but also being in that rhythm. Like in the NBA, you play back-to-backs. You play every other game. You play three games a week. So to have nine games off without a true competitive game because the guys went hard in practice. It's not like coach let them off the hook. Guys were practicing hard. The players were, you know, earning their time and earning their minutes. So um, it's definitely something you file away just to think about. I know Joel looks at his performance in games like this. I'm sure you guys do as well. Defense first for him always. But was that encouraging to see the way Joel finished that game out on Monday night, what he was able to get back to doing, especially establishing himself down low? Uh, absolutely. You know, it's him playing big defense first. You know, he, he knows that's how you have to win some games. But to see him, you know, with that spacing on that block, um, getting those buckets when he was asked to, it's it definitely bodes well for his confidence and our team's confidence because if they're not going to double and triple him, <laughs> look out. This is probably a really easy question to ask you, and I'm sure it's brought up to you a lot. How often do you talk to players, share stuff with them? Is it different now that you're in a front office capacity versus when you came back to the team? How does that whole dynamic work? Yeah, so with the team, I get a lot of off-the-court stuff too. You know, like, hey, you know, family issues, money issues, um, significant other issues, you know, whatever. Like I get those kind of issues as long also with the court stuff. Now in the management role it's more on the court stuff and then it's like, can I set up a meeting to talk about, you know, the off the court stuff. It's like, hey, you know, da, da, da. so it's definitely definitely a different dynamic, but I I enjoy and embrace the role because I still can, you know, be in their lives and still can have that ex player relationship with the players. As much as they're learning and some of them are going through this for the first time, you're a part of this in the postseason in your capacity in the front office right now. And see you over there with the boss man, Brian Colangelo, talking about stuff. You guys are in a really tight circle, some of the key decision makers. What are you learning at this stage? What are some of the new things being opened up to you? Um, so, you know, I'm, so I have draft prep. Um, all these guys came out in the second round. 
Um, I mean, came out to the draft. A lot of them are going to be in second round and not drafted. It's about 25, 30 guys. So we're just talking about feel of the game because at my level, I'm not going to get a Joel Embiid. <laughs> so it's like, okay, rim protection versus being able to space it, you know, things like that, where the game's going. Uh, the Draymond Green types, the Ben Simmons types that are big and they can do it all, rebound, pass, score, um, and, and not flow. Um, con- uh, concerning the series, to shoot around like where do we have shoot around what's the time are we taking advantage of our time is it efficient you know just from a management standpoint um you know looking at the coaching and how that's going like you we we have to look at it all you obviously had a front seat to the game for a decade and a half as a player how has your way of looking and evaluating talent changed even this one year being a personnel man now you know i really have to say that potential where the players will be in a few years is very important or a year or two because you know you look at a trade let's say Oladipo he's not the same player that was traded from Orlando but I was with in South Africa with Joel Embiid working out with Dirk Nowitzki with CJ McCollum and I saw his work ethic I saw him want to be a better player I seen him grinding to want to be an all-star like he wasn't satisfied where he was now maybe it's because he got traded maybe because he got traded again or whatever but i've seen that work so you have to basically look at the potential and project where this player would be in a few years that's important so i'm really learning that because i you you know at first i'm like okay this guy has these this talent he has this length he has this that this athleticism but it's that extra that that potential factor that you really have to factor in for <laughs> lack of a better word um it's funny that you're talking about some of the stuff whereas everyone on the coaching side and the player side it's game two of the eastern conference semifinals but from the personnel department standpoint there's really not a whole lot that you guys can do right now as far as making moves i mean this the roster is the roster is the roster right now these are the guys you're rolling with where is it all now getting ready for what's happening within two weeks, the combine and, and draft and that type of preparation? And I hate to say it, but, yeah, we're weeks ahead, even a month ahead. You know, we're looking to Vegas. We're looking to some, my job. You know, right. I'm looking for summer league, putting together that roster. I'm looking at, like I said, that 35 through 80 type players coming out of college. I'm looking at international. So I'm gearing up for next season now. And it's, you know, it's uncanny because we're here. We're in this series. We're in this fight. We want to win this thing. But as an exec in my role, I have to start preparing for next season too. I remember in Chicago last year, um, at one point during the combine, Bob Myers from Golden State and Masai Ujiri from the Raptors were off on the side having a conversation. This is the middle of May, and their two teams are playing in the conference (laughs) finals. And I was thinking, wow, what a high-class problem to have. Where How do you divert your attention? How do you send out your resources? Are you going to games? Are you at the Combine? But incredible that a year later, here are the 76ers in a similar type of situation. Absolutely, absolutely. And you have to find a way. You know, yeah. Mark Eversley, he's on executive staff. We talk about it. Like, hey, if we played, you know, Indiana at a time, okay, we can get to Chicago easily from there. Or Cleveland or Boston, you know, whatever it is. We may have to go scout, watch the players, the potential players, and then get on a plane or drive and get to wherever we're playing in the playoffs. That's just, you have to do it. A couple more items before we wrap up. Do you think at all, and maybe in this series in particular, 
about 2012. Where does that series stand out amongst the experiences you had over your career? Oh, it still stings. It hurts. You know, seeing the Boston floor and seeing the players and, uh, you know, Rondo hitting those big three-pointers after being two for ten in the series. Um, and he's playing very well still today. So I, I, so I'm, I'm happy for that fact because it's not like – you know, anything out of the ordinary for him to be an excellent player and have an excellent game. But Paul Pierce fouls out. We're going on the run. We're down three or four points. It just felt like now we play Miami in the Eastern Conference Finals after losing to them the year before in the first round. It's like, you know, we were in first place in our division most of the year, and Boston overtook us because they had the veterans, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and, of course, Rondo from that championship team. So it just felt like it was our time to – you know, take that next step, and uh, we came so close. It, it hurts. It still hurts. It was an awesome series, though. I, just remembering some of the moments, obviously, Andre Godala in Game 4, and I'm sure no one can debate now, especially where the Sixers organization is at this point, but you go back and look at that roster between Andre and Lou Williams and Drew Holiday, uh, Thaddeus Young. I, I mean, that's a pretty – Legit squad right there. Absolutely. Pretty legit. And still, these players, like I said, you just mentioned, they're still having great careers to this day. And to come up close, you know, come that close. If we win that game, okay, you made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. It's not going to be the wholesale changes that occurred. But to get that close and to take the next step, you know, you have to shoot for the stars. So I totally understand why. Uh, you know, the team is broken up. Like, I get it. You know, I'm a realist. I get it. You want to take that jump. You don't want to just be close to the Eastern Conference Finals. You want to get there and get to the championship is the goal. You still stay in touch with a handful of those guys? Oh, the players? Absolutely. Even Coach Doug, you know, we talk here and there for sure. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, Final few items. Congratulations. A nice newsworthy honor for you within the last week. Duke Hall of Fame. That's got to be pretty cool. Uh, Very cool. Very cool. I've actually never heard of it before (laughs) until, you know, Kevin AD called me. He's like, congratulations. So I'm like, I call Coach K and I'm like, is this uh, like a dinner or is this, what is this? And he's like, oh, no, it's a big deal. We'll all be there. You so deserve it. Like, And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go then. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I've never heard of the Duke Athletics Hall of Fame before. So, you know, I'm truly honored and, uh, you know, happy to, that, to get that opportunity. And how about bringing it full circle? We're recording this conversation inside – Levitis Pavilion, that is the home of the Harvard Crimson basketball program. Their head coach is Tommy Amaker, who, along with Quinn Snyder from the Utah Jazz, you said recruited you. What did they do to convince you that Duke was the place? Did they sell you on a particular vision? Um, just growth as a person, being under you know Coach K, um, their time there. They're both ex-Duke players. Uh, you know Johnny Dawkins was also there. He was like the head assistant. But just that group and just the family, you see all ex-Duke players were the assistant coaches and their time there. Um, you know, that's that's what really sold me on it. The basketball stuff, of course, but just the family, the unit, and, and the growth and what they call the brotherhood today. Any updates on the Blue Coats? Things moving along in Wilmington? Oh, yeah. Things are moving along well. We should have the, the field house ready um, by January, so that's going to be great. Uh, maybe mid-December. Uh, looking for great players now, so we're, we're, we're piping up. We're getting ready for that. Awesome. Elton, best of luck on the trail. Thanks, man. Always great, regardless of occasion, to have the chance to sit down and chat with Elton Brand, discussing things present, past, and in the future as it pertains to the 76ers, so thanks to him for taking a few minutes to talk following the Sixers' practice 
on Wednesday at Harvard. Also, thanks to Ursan Ilyasova for the sit-down. And most of all, thank you for giving the podcast a listen. We will have a rewind edition of the podcast for you Friday morning, fresh on the heels of Game 2. Hopefully there will be some positive talking points to discuss. And then stay tuned throughout the weekend as we get ready for Games 3 and 4 in South Philadelphia. Cannot wait. As fun as it is to be involved in this time of year, always that much better. We have a chance to uh, see things unfold in friendly home territory, so it should be a lot of fun with the series shifting to Philadelphia on Saturday for Game 3. All right, that's it for this edition of the podcast. Talk to you next time. Enjoy Game Number 2. See ya. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.